Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. I'm talking today with the co-founder, CEO and board director of Mimecast. Mimecast is a global cybersecurity company specialised in email all the way through. Hi, Peter. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I want to start by asking you, 20 years ago when Mimecast was founded, Email was kind of central to everything that we do in business, right? But at the time, like there was a movement in technology as companies were starting that initial migration to the cloud where it looked like email might be dead. It had a uh, shelf life, you know, that email would no longer be the central component of communication. So I don't know if it was a gutsy move, but um, certainly 20 years later, I don't think anyone's getting rid of email real quick, are they? Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, that that idea that email wasn't necessarily going to be the next big thing is probably the one sentiment that enabled two South Africans to show up in London and co-found a a cybersecurity company specializing in the risk around email. That allowed us, we were wholly unqualified to build a, a large global cybersecurity company. But just the fact that nobody thought it was the next big thing created enough space for us to get in there and win on a global stage over an extended period of time because I think, you know, more capable people, if I can put it that way, shied away from the space and focused on other areas of cybersecurity. And that gave us enough time to learn how to do this, to learn how to build a tech company, to learn how to build the technology from a cloud perspective. I think that coupled with the fact that cyber adversaries certainly didn't underestimate the power of email as an attack tool and really lent into it because of the incredible, I suppose it's like a Swiss army knife for a cyber adversary. You've got the ability to use it as a pathway to the mind and the machine of every employee in a company. And it's a diverse format. So you can embed links in it that can take people to wherever you want. You can embed attachments in it that can contain malware or even further links that have been you know, obfuscated from scanners. You can put seemingly benign content in it that is socially engineering or tricking people, deceiving people into cooperating with you. So it's, it's really such a fascinating, and that's before even some of the machine-to-machine, the DDoS attacks, the directory harvest attacks, credential harvesting attacks. And it's really a, a really useful tool for attackers. And as you say, a mission-critical tool for organizations. So we're going to jump into some of the technology in just a moment. But before we do, last year, I think the company was acquired or taken private by private equity firm Permira, $5.8 billion transaction. So you had been traded on the NASDAQ. I'm kind of interested in going private, as it were, as an already large, you know, very large global company. What can you do now that you couldn't do before? What are you able to focus on now that was perhaps more difficult before? And is there a reverse of that? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And, you know, obviously, having led the company and taken a lot of pride in managing 
I guess the long arc of destiny to the best you can as a CEO and, and a founder in a company, you have to navigate the growth of a business through different phases and different shareholder arrangements. Obviously, initially kind of founder funded, then angel funded, venture capital funded, growth equity funded. And then, James, as you mentioned, six and a half years on NASDAQ as a public company. And now in private equity ownership hands. And, you know, you do your best as you go through those phases to select your partners, to make sure that you've got people that are aligned with, with your vision and your values and, and are true to kind of the essence of the company that you're really looking to build and keep building. So it's interesting. As a public company, I think it suited us really well for that period of time, having gone public late 2015. Nothing's easy about being public necessarily, but we found ways to be successful in our business model certainly lent itself towards the kind of predictability that public company investors like. So we went out at 10 bucks a share. You know, three months later, we were at six bucks and I wasn't feeling like the smartest guy in the room. But ultimately, the Primera transaction we acquired it at $80 a share. So I think we did well for our shareholders through that cycle. I mentioned being a public company, their prize predictability. You obviously have a lot of diverse shareholders. They may not all be after the same thing at the same time. So it probably tended us to be a little bit more risk averse, a little bit more married to predictability and maybe less bold, less entrepreneurial in some ways. So it's exciting now to have one shareholder, one shareholder that is very focused on product innovation, customer centricity, and, and thereby growth and thereby value creation and, and profitability. So those are really good, healthy things for the long term for a tech company to invest in. And so it gives us more flexibility. It also brings obviously more scrutiny, which so maybe a more intense activity because rather than it being kind of quarterly reporting and you, you manage your, your metabolic rates between those quarterly reporting periods, you know, now it's sort of weekly, monthly type of interactions. And we're really looking at how do we get traction on, on specific focused initiatives alongside them. So it, it's different. We're all learning some new motions. So let me ask you this, just in terms of investment in technology, would it be fair enough to say that given how quickly tech is moving right now, particularly in terms of AI and machine learning and all the stuff that cyber kind of is heavily based on, are you better off now having a, a simplified shareholder base, as in your private equity firm, being able to make longer term, deeper bets and move faster, break things without the whole world knowing about? Does that make sense as an argument? I hear what you're sort of proposing, and my response to that would be, I think shareholders can potentially break innovation inside companies, but as a neutral factor, generally, it's up to management and it's up to the innovators in the organization to go and pursue that innovation. So I don't think there's any written rule that says public company investors will prevent you from being successful as a cybersecurity innovator. Private investors will be better. I think any of those have the ability to reduce investment in R&D. And I think what, what I'm excited about with Premier is they really understand that it's a product first world in tech. You've got to have the best products. You've got to have the best efficacy. You've got to have the best customer experience. And that's worth investing in. It's a fast moving space. So these aren't businesses that you can sit on and decide you're just going to milk and extract the profits. It is a constant, exciting cycle. And the no. stakes are very high. It's a competitive space. But if you get it right, you build a valuable business, valuable to, you know, not just shareholders, but valuable and important to customers and to the employees that work in the business. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is uh, certainly fast moving. Let me ask you this. This might be a little bit of a strange question, but while we're talking about the business, you mentioned before you've bootstrapped, you've, you've brought on angels and family investors, you've taken VC, you've gone public, and now you've gone private. So what's the most fun or most rewarding as someone who's who's running a company? Like, do you enjoy the freedom of a bootstrapper or I'm sure you enjoyed the resources of the VC era? What's rewarding for you? You know, it is funny. It's easy to look back, and I'm sure many of our longer-term staff do, with sort of great fondness for the early days and you you have nostalgia for how you did things and overcame things together. But what you forget over time is how terrifying and, and the fact that you were in constant survival mode. I, I used to remember waking waking up on the weekends and sort of going to the supermarket with my wife and our young kids, and I, I would just say to her, I, when we get home, I have to work. She'd be like, okay, you seem bothered. And I'd, I'd be like, I've got that, you know, that feeling when you, um, when you've got an exam, you've got to write the next day, but you're not prepared. You haven't studied like that, that constant kind of like churn. You always like in the state. And I think there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of fun. You feel like you're breaking new ground. You, you feel like you're up against big odds, but I wouldn't want to go back to that in a sense. Like I sort of advise and help a number of smaller startup type companies now. And like I have a lot of respect for what they face every day. And it's not to say that running a bigger company is sort of somehow magically easier, but it's different. You've got a lot of infrastructure. You've got a lot of, of resource. You're not living in fear of the whole thing collapsing rather quickly, you know, running out of cash or having a fatal setback in the business. Bigger companies die, but they die slowly. Small companies can die very quickly. And when you're putting your heart and soul into something, it's a scarier place when you're a small company. I suppose it's all kind of stressful, just uh, you're trading up for a different kind of pressure or a different kind of stress. Let me ask you this. The Prime Minister in Australia recently talked about or announced a series of investments into basically a crack team of cyber first responders. We had some massive data breaches here last year, Optus, Medibank were the headlines, but they're very expensive, very embarrassing, very damaging to, to those companies. So I guess I just want to ask you, is this our future? Governments will continue to need to pump money into the infrastructure around cybersecurity, but nothing is perfect, but we will continue to see these large breaches? Or do you see that at some point we're going to reach a, a happy place? Look, I think the, these breaches are a little bit of the new normal, certainly in, in the States. It's almost unfortunate that they, they come and they go and the new cycle moves, and I'm sure these aren't the first ones. Certainly aren't the first breaches that have happened in the Australian market. They, they're the most recent, and, and maybe they're larger, maybe they're more memorable now. We're going to be dealing with this type of thing for a long time because it is the nature of conflict between human beings now. It's, it's as much as a government is responsible for law enforcement and the protection of the nation through military, this is the digital environment that we live in. So I think it's a good thing that, that well, to be effective, there has to be coordinated effort and there has to be some sort of centralized effort that goes into it. So when governments invest and they, they signal that they're taking it seriously, that is a very positive sign. Of course, I think we have to also be cautious of somehow assuming that the government solves this problem for us. Because I think you assume that the government solves military problems for the most part. In a real wartime scenario, it becomes a, a whole society effort to deal with it. 
But in the preventative realm, you leave that to the government. You don't sort of buy your own military hardware and imagine that you're going to be responsible for coordinating it yourself. But because cyber is such an open network and there are no physical boundaries to it, leaving it to the government is not a good idea. The government has a role to play. They certainly can do a lot. They have access, they have surveillance mechanisms, they have resources that individual corporations or, or people are never going to have. But businesses... Can I, can I just jump into that? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to ask you very specifically, what do you make philosophically of this idea that government will jump in and take over the cyber operations of a private company where it feels that that company might be a critical infrastructure provider or a company that feeds into a critical infrastructure provider? Just philosophically, should governments jump in and, you know, and take over controls for those responsibility for those services? I'm not sure that's a bad idea. I think cyber security is a team sport. So working together is critical. Displacing a private sector organization's cyber team and replacing it, I think, is a tricky activity. I mean, what we saw in the US, which was a very high-stakes game around the SolarWinds breach, was, I think, very coordinated private-public teamwork to counteract that, where... FBI and other agencies were able to advise private companies, provide them with insights, provide them with indicators of compromise and key data points to be more successful. The reality is, is the government doesn't have any special superpowers. I mean, in in those situations, they too were breached. You had departments, you know, big three-letter agencies that were also compromised in that situation. So in a sense, to have a feeling of superiority that somehow they know better and they're impervious to it and they're coming to the rescue, I think is is the wrong idea. But by pooling knowledge, pooling resources, having playbooks, coordination, threat intelligence sharing, I think that's constructive. It's really a teamwork approach, I think, that's critical. Yeah, team game. That's an interesting way to put it. I'm talking to Peter Bauer, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder at Mimecast. Very quickly, moving on to technology, we were talking about AI before, I mean, all the tools that a defender has are also available to others. In relation to artificial intelligence and machine learning, all these things that are applied in cyber, are we in an arms race right now? You know, are the defenders having to move just faster and invest more and grab more people to defend against those sophisticated tools? Yeah, look, I mean, it is an arms race. I think that's probably the best characterization of it. And with every development of every tool, technique, weapon, these things can be used for, you know, offense and defense. And even the idea of governments having offensive cyber capabilities, you know, that can backfire in in a couple of ways. I mean, we saw the NSA toolkits being leaked on the internet some years ago, the whole eternal blue thing. And what that did is it sort of made some very, very dangerous and advanced cyber hacking tools available to the bad guys. So one has to be careful about this notion of offensive hacking. Obviously, these tools can also be used to erode civil liberties. So there's a reason why, you know, even though one might have a great deal of trust in law enforcement or in in government, there's a balance of governments that have, without making any specific statement, um, total power corrupts uh, absolutely or whatever, however the statement is. So you don't ever want things to get out of balance in that regard. It is interesting that things like AI 
and new tools like ChatGPT, for example, that are starting to demonstrate new forms of productivity for human beings. And those can be exciting. Those can aid human creativity and or suppress it. They're sort of neutral in that respect, but they, they can enhance our capabilities. Adversaries can use those too. And I think the, the one thing we, we worry about quite a bit is human-to-human scams, if you like. Email is often used for those. Typically, it has a cost imposed on the attacker because they've got to do their research, they've got to craft their messages, and so it contains the amount of productivity that they can have. These productivity enhancement tools like ChatGPT can quite plausibly allow an attacker to, at scale, have very targeted attacks that behave a little bit like human-to-human attacks. I mean, for example, if, if we were creating a human-to-human attack and you, you'd research someone, you'd, perhaps you'd know that they were on vacation somewhere, they were just changed jobs, maybe they bought a new house, maybe their kid goes to a certain school. You can leverage all of that information in a human-to-human attack to create something quite convincing. But you have to put in the time and effort. So there's a, there's a natural friction on it. And a cost and a limitation on on how much of that really goes on in the world, although you know far more than we'd want. But when you start being able to automate and have AI powered generative AI that can create some of these things and then learn what works and improve and enhance it, from a defender's perspective, it means that our defensive technologies have to be able to look and analyze and interpret these things. And there's a lot of like I think naive cybersecurity things of, well, we could just detect, I'm sure we could detect that this is generated by AI and then block it. Well, maybe you can, but maybe maybe the world starts having lots of legitimate content and marketing content or research papers created by generative AI. You can't just say, well, well, if it's not actually written by a person or it doesn't look close, therefore it's bad. So I think we are moving into a new space with this stuff and we've got to be on top of our game here. Well, okay, so I was going to uh, finish up with this question, and I guess, well, there's a few questions. We're living in quite dangerous times. We've all learnt a lot in the last 12 months, certainly, with uh, Ukraine and uh, and a lot of the cyber activity that went on around that. I guess, if, if you can just quite openly, you know, plans for 2023, like where's your area of focus? And, and just given some of the background that you've just talked about, well, what's keeping you up at night? What are your priorities for the year? Well, I think, James, great question. The reality is technology alone isn't going to defend us and people on their own aren't likely to win. So how do we get a multiplier effect between well-trained, well-alerted people and defensive technology? And so some of that is about training people on an offline basis. But as the difference between normal behavior and malicious behavior, as the difference can be very, very subtle in terms of its appearance, How do you start to surface some of the underlying information that a a human being might be able to look at and go, okay, that's not right? So interfaces that we work with today from a productivity perspective kind of only show you what you need to know to do the job. But if they were able to surface more information that would allow you to see behind the scenes to be able to determine the authenticity of it, that would be helpful. So I use this analogy of Antiques Roadshow. When you see an artifact, if you're an expert, you sort of turn it around and you know what you're looking for and you can see this marking or or this sign to say that it's fraudulent or a forgery. I think the work surface, the work environment, as we have artifacts and interactions, communications that come from outside parties, 
technology has to be better at showing people the things about that that might either infer more trust or less trust because we have to be able to leverage what a human knows as well as what a computer knows in order to do this. We can't just have computers making the decisions and we can't leave people on their own to just assume they can trust everything that's in front of them. It sounds uncomfortable, it sounds awkward, but there are some incredibly focused creators of digital deception out there that are going to be preying on people through communications in order to steal information, credentials, and compromise people in the workforce. And I think that's one of the more dangerous areas of cybersecurity going forward. Because defending machines is easier nowadays. It's not trivial, but it's easier. It's that human interface that is being exploited more and more by cyber adversaries. Well, it sounds like it's going to keep you busy. It's a completely fascinating area, I've got to say. And the level of sophistication and nuance, as you say, is really quite something. Peter Bauer from Mindcast, thank you very much for uh, being on the commercial disco with me today. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.